Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest is Wynn Cowger. He's a research scientist at the Moore Institute for Plastic Pollution Research. He's called Dr. Trash. So we're going to talk about macro and microplastics. Welcome, Wynn. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Really happy to be here. Uh, Tell me about your uh, background and why you got interested in plastics. And then uh, let's talk about your current research. Yeah, so my research, my interest in plastic goes back a long ways. I was 19 years old in India, traveling and just basically trying to trying to learn more about people and culture in India. And I was on a trail cleanup and I was noticing all of the trash around me was really like getting me kind of excited in an interesting way where I was kind of like, where did this trash come from? Like, where, where might it be going? What kind of harms could it cause on the environment? How did it get here? What are like some prevention efforts? You know, I was just, I was annoying everybody around me, uh, asking them all of these questions. And it, it really just ignited my curiosity in environmental systems and in human interactions with the environment. And in a way that, that kind of stuck, like I, I did not, I wasn't able to shake it. Even after that cleanup, I decided to continue there in India for about a month doing leading cleanups. And and then in my undergraduate, I conducted an undergraduate thesis project surveying trash in, in rivers in India. And then for my PhD, at that time, when I was interested in, in doing a PhD, there were very few professors who studied trash. So it was my job to convince professors that trash was a, an interesting area of research. And uh, and I was able to convince uh, my professor, Andrew Gray, at UC Riverside, who is a, a great mentor. And he took me on, took a risk on me. And I did my whole PhD topic on how trash and microplastics move around in the environment, mainly looking at watershed transport processes. So how they get from the landscape into the rivers and eventually into the oceans. So when you gave your thesis out, maybe you should have put like ketchup stains and coffee stains and like, you know, stuff on it when you give it out to the professors. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been a good good way to introduce the topic. (laughs) Well, tell me, um, tell me about your, your time in India. It sounds really interesting. What did, you know, like a lot, I've talked to a lot of plastic or microplastic researchers and not a lot of them seem to be out in the field very much, but you were literally like in India and other places. So what did you notice about the trash when you were pulling it out of rivers or in other places in India? Like what jumped out at you that told you interesting stuff? Yeah. So one of the big questions is how does it, how does it get into the environment in the first place? You know, for example, if you're by like a trash can in, in India, a lot of times you see all this trash, like, sprued out around the trash can. And this got me really puzzled at first. I was like, why is nobody throwing their trash into the trash can? And then out pops a little monkey from the trash can who's like, you know, jumping with joy and throwing the trash out of the (laughs) trash can. 
And then you understand how trash gets into the environment, even when even when people are not intentionally doing it. And I think that that was kind of a light bulb moment for me, because a lot of a lot of times we frame the problem of trash as like it's a personal responsibility problem. And in many cases, it can be. But oftentimes the institutionalized like structures in place are not adequate to actually allow us to manage our waste. And that's why it gets in the environment. So. Yeah, that's those are some of the questions that kind of get me really interested. And and India has been calling me back for a long time. I would love to be back out there again sometime soon. The people out there are just amazing people that are really passionate about ending trash out there. Well, um, like, like in the you know in the U.S., when I've gone to national parks, they'll have um, you know trash cans that are made to protect against bears getting in there. So, is there an analog in India? Like, could you redesign a trash can that monkeys can't get into? you know, maybe a little lock on it or something and then with a slot and then, you know, you won't have this problem. Yeah. Yeah. You, you totally could. I think there's, there's even some people who, uh, who are like spokespeople for strapping trash can lids down, you know, like a lot of, even here in the U S the trash can lids, they just, if, if the wind blows strong enough, it'll lift them up and then all the trash can get blown out of them because there's nothing locking it together. So that would be like a pretty simple solution. It's just like a simple strap. And then you could go even further, like bear. Well, you can make like a, a hinge lid with a slot in it. Then they won't get lost. You open the hinge, put the garbage in, close it. And then yeah. there's the slot for other people. I'm sorry, when you want to clean it out or when you want to take out the big bag, you open it. But otherwise, it's locked with a slot in it. You know, it's all one right. piece. Yeah. Uh, that's a really good idea. And I think some places have already implemented some of those some of those measures where this is like there's no other way they could even manage trash. Like, for example, with in places where there's lots of bears, they have to have a special opening because bears can even like unlock a strapped lid or like dig their hands inside of a hole. So they have this special opening that bears can't unlock. Hmm, OK, um, what, what did you notice about the uh, the trash in the rivers? How is it different from the trash sitting next to the garbage cans? Yeah. Well, one of the things is that it's been there for, for quite a lot longer, usually. The trash in the garbage cans is pretty fresh. People are trying to get it back into the garbage cans. and But the trash that's in the river can get trapped underneath rocks. It can It can get agglomerated with vegetation. You end up getting these like mats of trash. And I was really interested. I didn't ever pursue this as like a, a research question, but it, I was always interested in, I know some other people are, is you get these mats of trash that build up that are kind of like layered cakes. And if you peel back the layers, you're like digging into the history of the waste in the river. So you can see, like, I remember one of them, I was peeling back and it was like, oh, there's like a 60s, 1960s, like jacket. <laughs> here down at the very bottom oh wow i mean in india i'm not saying the untouchables should do this but is there a way to have like low-cost labor that needs a needs a job where they go with rakes and let's say rake out trash from the nearby river and maybe get paid a little bit for it i mean like what would be a solution you think that'd be workable for india honestly the main the main solution in india i i think as a you know, I'm I'm not an Indian, so I have to kind of be careful with how I interpret this. And, you know, there definitely are what, what you'd mentioned. There are a lot of waste workers and many of them are not paid very much at all, which is really unfortunate because it's it's a really important job out there. There are even in places where you have lots of trash, 
You can even have like pooling trash that creates breeding grounds for mosquitoes and increased risk of malaria and just all sorts of like health risks related to the trash when it gets really bad. So they are like really frontline like healthcare workers in in a sense. And so for me, like they're already doing, there's a ton of people like that that are already doing the job. What What is the problem is that people are not really given much choice in the products that they're able to select from, from the store. So why do we like, if, if the trash that was ending up in the rivers was all banana peels and like coconuts, it might not really be that problematic in the environment. It might be able to break down. The ecosystems might be able to thrive better than with the plastic, but people in India and here in the United States, everything is wrapped in plastic these days. And we don't really have an option choose between, you know, a plastic wrap thing or a not plastic wrap thing. It's just, here's the plastic, then we have to manage it. So I think the best solutions really start at the top about how do we, how do we manage our resources and stop giving, putting resources out into society that we know will be likely mismanaged and cause harm in the environment. Um, I don't know if you remember, but what did you notice was different about India's trash versus in the United States? Hmm. Honestly, it's pretty, pretty similar stuff. Actually, I even have some, some uh, images from here in the United States, especially here in Southern California. You could put a side by side image, the river here in Southern California and a river in India. And you would be like, these are the same place. Like there's, it's the same kind of trash problem, you know, tons of food packaging, just trash, like choking out the streams. Because there's so much of it here in Southern California, we have a really big trash problem here. And yeah, so it seems in general, it seems pretty similar. And you can, you can look anywhere in the world. And I'll tell you, you can, I can tell you what you're going to find there most likely. I mean, not, not in a very specific sense, but I can tell you in a really general sense what you're going to find there. It's going to be mostly food packaging and cigarette packet, cigarette related stuff. Uh, and they've, They've done big studies on this, and it doesn't really matter where you look. You just find that. Okay. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000-plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. Do you see that, uh, you know, either India or here or anywhere, are people... I guess people are focused more on macro plastics versus microplastics because they could see them. But what do you think the public perception of macro versus microplastics is? Like, do I don't think most people even know that microplastics exist from the <laughs> interviews I've done, but what do you see? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so people in India uh, are studying microplastics, people out here, people all around. I think microplastics right now to me is like a really exciting topic. People kind of got introduced to the topic of microplastics through the uh, garbage patches. I don't know if you're familiar with the discussion on garbage patches in the ocean. Have you been to those gyres? Because I'm looking for I, someone that's been. I have. Yeah, I've been to two of them. Awesome. Um, what, what was it like? What did you see there? 
Yeah. Good for you. Good <laughs> in the field again. Thanks. Yeah. So I was able to go on a cruise with uh, Captain Charles Moore, who is is claimed as the discoverer of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, is also currently the the founder of the the group that I work for. Um, and we went out on an expedition to uh, the North Pacific Gyre, which is about a thousand miles off the shore of California. And you get out there and honestly, you look around and all you really see is ocean. You know, you might see like a piece of trash floating here or there, but for the most part, it's just like a typical ocean, just like the rest of the thousand miles. And it's not until you put a net in the water that you really realize what the problem is. So we would take these big nets called manta nets that float on the surface of the water and we drag them behind the boat for about 10 minutes to an hour. And then we'd pull them back up and we'd look inside of the nets and often about 50% of what was caught in the net is plastic. And I mean, that to me is alarming. 50% of what's in the ocean surface is is plastic. Like this is not good. What was the other 50%? Animals or seaweed? Yeah, a little plankton and seaweed and yeah. Mm-hmm. Little crabs. Okay. Lots of interesting stuff out there that I, I didn't know exist. Floating crabs. <laughs> okay, so um, so what did the garbage there and the garbage patch look like? How was it different? Yeah, so out there, um, it's a lot more fishing-related stuff. So when you see the occasional piece of trash floating by here or there, it might be like a buoy or it might be a, a fishing pot. Or it might be something for like cleaning clothes, um, stuff like that. You see a lot of that kind of, or or a ghost net we call them. They're these these uh, nets that float, and they keep they keep capturing fish, and they can cause problems to the marine ecosystem from that. So a lot of fishing related stuff uh, out there, further in the middle of the ocean. Okay, I thought it was more like uh, stuff from the land, but I guess so. There's like fishing lines old nets that may be torn or not buoys i mean so that's that's predominantly what's in the garbage yeah it's really hard to say for certain how much is coming from land versus how much is coming from from marine activities it's really challenging a lot of people have tried to do it i've heard lots of numbers thrown around honestly it it could be somewhere around like 50 50 you know from what I from what I've seen, because I've seen people saying that it's oh 80 percent of it's coming from the marine and other people saying the exact opposite. What I do know is that most of the plastic in the ocean is most likely going to be from land. And that's because when you're out in a garbage patch, you're just looking at the surface of the ocean. Um, you're not looking at everything down below the surface of the ocean. Uh, so rivers are pumping out tons of plastic, like ninety nine percent um sorry 99 times more plastic than is currently on the surface of the ocean they're pumping that out every year to the ocean so we know that rivers are a huge source to the ocean but it doesn't all stay on the surface a lot of it actually sinks down below the surface and can get distributed in the sediments a lot of it stays suspended in the water columns so when we're measuring the ocean surface we're not really getting the signature of the whole ocean and because of that, I think that's why you see a lot more of the marine stuff, because marine activities are happening up at the surface and they are uh, polluting the ocean there um, with plastic. 
And so you can, you can kind of get that like accumulation of the marine stuff right there at the surface. And it hasn't yet had time to like sink down or get dispersed as much so as, as the river stuff. Okay. And what's your uh, current research about? Oh man, I have so many different things. <laughs> oh, well, you, I mean, you pick what are, what's like the most interesting, yeah. thrilling thing that you're working on to you. Yeah. So for me, I'm really trying to push open science in my field. And I'm doing that in a bunch of different ways. So I am, I develop open source software for scientists and the public to be able to access. Like I, I provide this software for free and give people the source code. They can reuse it however they want. And also working with communities to do my research. I had this project up in uh, Pinole where we surveyed trash in the rivers there with a bunch of nonprofit groups. So that was, that's another part of, of being an open scientist and then doing some like advocacy and kind of like putting pressure on science to, to change for the better, because there are, it's the kind of like resistance to change sometimes. So for example, like sharing your data, people have hesitancy about sharing their data. And so I've been doing a lot of work to try to remove the barriers that are causing that hesitancy. And then also show like, wow, only 50% of studies out there are sharing their data. So I've done some research to like show that so that scientists can be like, oh, we should probably do something about this. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that's what I'm most passionate about right now. Well, yeah, what, what is the, uh, the software as you're creating? What does it help people do and what's the usefulness of it? So one of the softwares I'm creating helps people to identify microplastics. So when you, in, in microplastics research, when I'm out in the middle of the ocean and I get that sample of, you know, half plastic, I see all these particles and I can't be 100% confident about that they are plastic. Sometimes a little piece of plastic looks a lot like a piece of algae or something like that. So we, what we do is we take the particles to this device called an FTIR um, and this device will hit the particle with light and that light signal will tell us what material the particle is made out of. Um, and so my software analyzes that light and tells people what the microplastics are. And that one's called Open Specky. Okay. Hmm. So, uh, but the person has to, you know, find their own uh, FTIR, you know, Fourier transform device to do that. <laughs> yeah. Like, do they have to, like, okay, are there any labs that do this for pay, you know, for not a lot of money to analyze microplastics or? Do people have to uh, send it into a research university or, you know, I would guess that these devices are very, very expensive and rare. Yeah. Um, for benchtop devices for larger particles, they're actually like relatively affordable for people like in the tens, $10,000 range, which like for, I don't know, you know, any corporation or nonprofit isn't like, isn't going to totally be too expensive. But especially when you try to look at smaller and smaller particles, the expense goes up like exponentially. I mean, we so our lab has a, has a microscope FTIR that can look down to 20 micron particles, which are, uh, you know, like fractions of a millimeter in size. Um, and that one costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. And uh, we so when people want to analyze samples, they often contact us, they might contract us to do work, or they collaborate with us and use our equipment. There's lots of different ways you can get access to it. When I first started, it was really hard to find one of these. 
I think today it's a lot easier. I know of three in California, three different labs that specialize in microplastics that have have one of these devices. So I think it's becoming easier for people to, to access them. It is kind of expensive, though, to analyze these samples. It can cost like $1,000 in labor to analyze a sample. So there are some barriers still there. But at least I've, we've alleviated the software part of the barrier, which used to cost an extra $10,000. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I mean, but what are people analyzing just for the presence of the microplastics or the morphology or other characteristics of them? With the FTIR, mostly what people care about is the material type. So they want to know what type of polymer is it, because you have hundreds of different types of polymers. You have polyethylene, polypropylene, polycarbonate, polyvinyl chloride, you know, there's in all these different mixtures of the polymers and additives and stuff. And so they want to know what type of polymer is it. And that can help you identify like industries that are responsible or different things like that using that info. So from looking at some of this data, what, you know, is, is uh, the distribution of what's there in microplastics like wildly source dependent or what do you notice about it? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm not sure that we've, I, I, I'm not sure that we've actually seen huge differences in the material types in different areas based on sources. I'm sure you would if you were in a really unique area where there is a unique source, you would see that unique fingerprint. But for the most part, what we see is that the plastics that we find are representative of the plastics that are being produced today. So you see the vast majority of them are like polyethylenes and polypropylenes because those and, and PET too, because those are like in all the consumer products. We also see some separation based on like environmental compartments. So I mentioned the rivers are spewing out all of this trash every year, like tons. Some of it sinks, some of it floats. And you can, there's certain polymers that are more likely to sink and certain polymers that are more likely to float. So we do see a little bit of like differences because of that too. Well, um, so you can identify the different polymers and maybe how many there are, but can you trace it back to the objects being produced? Like what are the most common objects that, that tend to end up in, in rivers that you've seen? Yeah, that that is extremely hard to do with just the material signature because what the material signature is telling you is about the chemical bonds in the material, not about like the form or anything like that. Um, and so you end up needing multi, if you want to go down to the level of like, oh, this came from a Coca-Cola plastic bottle, then you need to look at even more data than just the spectra. You have to also look at the morphology, also look at the the different like surface textures and stuff like that to really kind of peel back the layers on, on what it is. And it's a, to do that, it's a huge process. I mean, I was telling you earlier about the, the cost of just processing one sample is like $1,000. That's because it takes somebody a week just to process. A, it, you have to pay a person to sit for a week processing one sample right now. It's a big barrier for the field. Okay. Are you seeing more? I don't know if you can tell this, but you know, I know there's plasticizers, additives, all kinds of stuff. Are you seeing more polymer backbone or are you seeing a lot of the additives and stuff, um, you know, still sitting intermingled with, let's say, the plastic backbone in these various microplastics? Yeah. So with FTIR, 
it generally follows what's called the beer Lambert law, which basically states that the signal is going to be the, like what you get, what you measure is going to be proportional to the concentration of what's in the material. And for most plastics, the vast majority of the material, even though there could be like tons of additives, tons of different types of additives in there, the vast majority of the material is going to be the polymer. So you're seeing the polymer, but for some plastics, I think, I think it's those little fishing worms that people use that are really wiggly. Some of those have like a, a high percentage of additives. And so you can actually see the additives really well too in those. Are you seeing uh, evidence of microbial life, like a microbiome associated with the, the plastics or the microplastics? I haven't personally looked at that. I know a lot of other people have, and they have found that there are different microbial communities on plastics, depending on what ecosystem they're in and, and other stuff like that. Okay. So with the data coming in so far, what, what do you think will be the usefulness of it? You know, and, and again, is it doesn't sound like anyone's aggregating it over many different sources to see differences in the, you know, the composition of what's coming, but I guess maybe that would be useful. But um, again, what's the usefulness of it so far that you see the science? Yeah, actually, that is my that's one of my like big jobs right now is to aggregate all the data from all these different sources and put it together in a harmonized way so that people can really understand a lot of these really interesting questions that you're bringing up. Like, is there a worse problem of plastics here than in, uh, you know, some other country? Is there a different type of problem here than somewhere else? Um, and so we we've spent the last six months focused on aggregating all the data on microplastics in drinking water. So we've reviewed like all of the studies on microplastics in drinking water and synthesized them down into one harmonized framework so that people can use that data all together. We're doing the same thing for rivers right now, globally, globally river plastics. And we're going to uh, make these data sets open, open data, which I think is really important because we're, we're putting in a lot of effort into this and we, we want it to be able to be uh, used by other people, not just kind of like hold it for ourselves. Yeah. Um, when when there's a river and there's turbulence or a waterfall, you know, where it meets the ocean or there's ocean spray, has anyone been sampling the sprays or, you know, near turbulent waters versus still to see like what microplastics may be volatilized from rivers and from oceans? Yeah. Honestly, I don't know a ton about the atmospheric compartment uh, in in the atmospheric sources of plastics mainly because I just haven't worked with it that much. I've mostly been working on on land and and in the rivers and in the ocean. But I do know that there are that is like uh, I went to so every every year there's the uh, American Geophysical Union conference, which is like a big conference for scientists, and there was a whole session dedicated to atmospheric microplastics, and they were looking at microplastics in hail and in snow and in I think there was even one in sea spray, which you you mentioned too. So yeah, it definitely is up in there. And we do think that is one of the main ways that microplastics get from land to really remote places like the Alps or to Antarctica, because we basically see microplastics everywhere. Um, and that's not unique necessarily to microplastics. Actually, a lot of contaminants travel through the atmosphere and concentrate near the poles. So, but it is something that's that's happening and, and uh, the atmosphere is a really important part of the problem. 
or part of, part of the puzzle, I should say. How do plastics get into rivers? I mean, I can see, you know, people throwing stuff in the river, but, you know, if you have rivers with a bunch of businesses that back to them, maybe their effluent is what's comprising most of the plastics in the river. Like, what if you have a factory that, I don't know, processes clothing and all their waste is fibers? And that's, you know, in that river, would you see, again, a, a large signal of like fiber type waste versus other kinds? Like, where, where do you think the major contributors to plastic pollution in rivers is coming from? I think for the most part, it's coming from, I mean, yeah, it's all coming from land-based sources, right? Eventually, if you follow it all the way, what we see in rivers is lots of food packaging, tobacco products. I know if you look at small, like microplastics, you see fibers pretty much everywhere. So those are those are the big things that that I'm seeing. Also, what's it called? The production pellets. There are these pellets, plastic pellets that are used to make plastic. So they'll melt down these pellets and those can be spilled. And when they get spilled, they get into the rivers and eventually even make their way into oceans. And you can find areas where, you know, you just have tons of these, like it's a huge problem. So even though we have laws in the United States, we're still seeing that that be a, a big, big part of the environmental problem. So those are the main things that that I'm noticing. And I think what's what's really interesting is like, what aren't we noticing, right? I'm not noticing a lot of cell phones. I'm not noticing a lot of the newest iPhone. Why not? It's because that has value. Like, even if it was in the river, somebody would find it and they'd want to keep it. <laughs> I'm not noticing $100 bills out there. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, hmm. So what are you saying? You're seeing actual feedstock pellets unused oh, yeah. that are being like, where would that come from? Just inefficiencies of a plant or like, you know, a, sorry, when I say a plant, I mean a business or a manufacturing facility. Like right. why would that be in the water? Yeah. Um, so when they, are that, is, that is like throwing dollar bills or hundred dollar bills in the water, essentially they're wasting right. this valuable feedstock. Yeah. I mean, I think I think plastic is not it's so low value that for them, if they lose 100 pounds of it, it's not that big of a deal, even like financially. And so like for for some time, there were lots of spills before we had laws required these industries to clean their stuff up. And so I think it's happening like uh, along the transport. I've seen it like they'll they'll cart plastic pellets by rail and often when they're like the place where the train stops, you'll see a bunch of plastic pellets out spilled out. You could imagine, I mean, it's the train is stopping. It's kind of an abrupt movement. You might get some spill out from that when they open up the um, the compartment to like release the pellets so that they can put them into another another container. You can get some spill out from that. I don't know a ton about it. It would be interesting to have an industry person on who's like, an expert in that in that spill in, in how those spills happen because I've always wanted to know too. Um, they probably wouldn't want to admit it. Yeah. You know, they, they would minimize it or probably you know say, oh, it's very efficient. Right. Yeah. No, these spills, especially too, like there's some very famous ones that have happened in the ocean. I remember two or three years ago there was one, I think it was near Japan, and it like they had this big spill. And it created a huge fish die off even. And so they're kind of like oil spills in a lot of ways when, when they get out there in, in vast numbers. 
So what what do you think is um I mean what's near to a breakthrough in understanding of microplastics or it just seems to me like the industry is so young and everyone's like, oh we don't know, we don't know. Oh, um, you know, I, I know this is a new industry, microplastics relatively, but what are some of the important concepts or things that you're seeing are starting to become known, you know, from the research? Because it sounds like you've done a big overview of a lot of the research in the area. So with right. you know, with your perspective, like what do you see as coming to the forefront now? Yeah. I mean, one of the one of the major things is just that micro microplastics are everywhere. Like anywhere, anywhere you look for them, you will find them for sure. Um, so that that is I mean, we're we're transforming our world, but like with with how much plastic is out there and how it's gotten into everything. So if there if there are any issues with plastic in specific ecosystems, they're beginning to happen. And we need to like stop the plastics from getting into the environment. There are many studies that have demonstrated hazards, harm to organisms from plastics at certain doses and stuff. It's really hard for us to to pinpoint like, oh, this much of plastic is bad. And a lot of people have even been arguing for what's called a a non-target pollutant designation for plastics, which basically means any amount of plastic is bad because because we know that it can cause harm at lots of different levels. And so those are some of the some of the big things that I think we really know now. And what we're trying to do as a community is trying to get into the details of, okay, when exactly does it cause harm? How exactly does it cause harm? Which particle types cause harm? These kind of things we need to like, we need to get into the details. And then I think also one of the big uh, exciting things that I'm really excited about is thinking about how to prevent plastics from getting into the environment in the first place. And this is a newer kind of research because often when we study microplastics, we go out into the environment, we go out to the middle of the ocean, we go measure it out there. But that's not really where it's being produced. That's not how it's getting into the environment. Often it came from somewhere far away. And so what you end up getting is this signal that's basically like gobbledygook of all these different transport processes. And you can't easily figure out like, oh, the plastics came from, you know, California. I can't tell you that when I'm looking at a sample in the in the ocean very easily. I'm going to have super high uncertainties around that. So a lot of people have started thinking about, well, what does it mean to do prevention-oriented research? What does that look like? And I'll give you an example of one, one way that I'm incorporating that into my research is we did this big study here in, uh, in California, in Southern California, where we surveyed trash on roadsides. Roads are one of the major places where trash like first enters the environment. And what we did is I actually did one out in my in my neighborhood here. We surveyed trash on the road and we removed all the trash and characterized all of it, every every brand type, every type of product, material, everything like that. And then so we cleaned it all up and then we came back and we measured it again. And then we came back and we measured it again, and kept removing it. And so we we're able to see actually the we are able to see the input of trash into the environment because that is where it is first coming in. And I think doing research at that close to the, to the point of the problem is going to really help us to like reveal 
what the issue really is. So I can talk about what, what, did, what did you yeah. yeah tell me about that. What did you see? Yeah. So one of the one of the big things that we saw. So we had we had a ton of receipts um, that we found. And you don't find receipts out in the middle of the ocean because they'd all be you know really highly degraded and stuff unless they're plastic receipts. And these receipts have tons of data on them. They have like dates, timestamps. They have uh, dollar values on them. And what we can use is we can use that information to try to track where the trash is coming from. So I knew all of the businesses around where the trash was coming from in my neighborhood. And we're also able to investigate some of the potential transport mechanisms for getting the trash to there. So one of the things that I I was thinking is like, well, is this trash just like originating at those places? Like if you go to a McDonald's, does does your litter just like enter the environment right at the McDonald's and then it blows over to where I found it? Or are you transporting it or is somebody transporting the trash to where I found it and then depositing it there? That was like a big question mark. And that process is really important if you want to manage the trash and you want to get these all of these companies on board to manage it, you need to really understand that which of those processes are most influential. So what did, you, what did you see? Was it was it a clear signal one way or another or no? It was yeah, it was. It was really cool. So we we ticked off, we first investigated whether wind transport could have transported the trash to where we found it. Basically by looking at the trajectories of the wind and the trajectories of the trash. And we saw that there was like no correlation. Like they just they were always going some random way to one another. So wind wasn't the thing. Um, rain also was not the thing because it basically never rained here in Southern California when we were doing our surveys. So it made it a really ideal place to do this study. And then last, we were able to look at how far the receipts transported and correlate that to the average distance that people move around on a daily basis. So that was another another kind of aha moment for us where we were able to see like, yeah, people are taking trash from these locations and taking it somewhere else. And then it's getting into the environment. And this may seem like kind of a, you know, not that critical of a thing, but really what it means is that if you're a producer producing these materials and you're accountable and responsible for, you know, what happens to those materials, then you also need to be thinking not just in your on your property, but you need to be thinking about the full life cycle of the trash if you want to prevent it from getting into the environment. So they need to expand what they're currently doing, not just like providing trash cans in at their at their facility, but also thinking about, you know, what if the waste gets out? Yeah, no, that's, I don't know. Yeah, it'd be hard for them to be responsible for that. But I, I see there'll be eventually a, a comprehensive product lifestyle or like waste life cycle, but in a different way, you know, what are we bringing in? How is it being handled? Uh, How are we disposing of it? How is it escaping? You know, all those things would come into play. Hmm. Okay. Very interesting. Well, when we're running out of time, but it's been a great discussion so far, where can people find out about all the projects you're working on and, you know, perhaps some of the software and everything, where could they go? Moreplasticresearch.org is our nonprofit research institute's website. Um, and that's more M O O R E plastic research.org. So yeah, they can go there and also just drop me an email or, or a call. We always love talking with people. Okay. Very good. Well, when, like I said, it's been a great call and I'm, 
I'm really interested in this stuff and I can see definitely you are and you're making a good bit, a big impact. So thank you for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.